I will tell young people today, you have so many resources available to you. Nobody wanted to mentor me. That's why I focus so hard on doing it for other people now. You have YouTube, you have TikTok, you have great people out there producing content. You have all these options to learn cybersecurity on your own now. There's communities, network with people in cybersecurity. Even if you're introverted, get out to your local meetups, go to your B-sides. It's okay if you need to like take an hour and then go back to your room for an hour and decompress your work yeah. experience your skills, et cetera, your education, write those down, go to a professional editor, have them put it into a document, tweak it with them, have a dialogue with them. And then you should go find somebody like a mentor and have a person who hires people in that field look at it. That gives you the best chance of success. You have the capability of doing this and you're gonna do a great job. Hey everyone, it's David Bumble back with a very special guest. Leslie, welcome. Thank you for having me. Leslie, before we jump into the detail, you've got a fantastic blog. You've got a, you're active on social media. Could you just tell people, and I'll put the links below for everyone who's watching, where they should go if they want to reach out to you, you know, learn from you, etc. Yeah, so I have a blog. It's tosiphony.net, and it's also linked in my social media pages. I'm active on a lot of different social media as hacks, the number four pancakes, hacks for pancakes. And I'm most active right now on Mastodon as hacks for pancakes at infosec.exchange. But I I'm also on pretty much every other social media provider under that name. So please feel free to reach out to me. So I'll just warn everyone, we're going to get a lot of advice from Leslie, but please, you can't send her like thousands and thousands of personal questions about your resume, but you know, reach out on social media. Uh, Leslie, hopefully you can help people who are watching, but le let's get to the technical content. Leslie, I want, to, I want to kick off with this. It's 2023. What are the top three things that I could perhaps do in 2023 to you know enhance my career? So get your resume looked over by both a professional editor and a mentor. And second of all, leading into that, find a mentor. So get involved in your local security meetups or an open source project or your B-sides conference, but go meet people and work to find a mentor. And then finally, pick a niche to study over the year in cybersecurity. So pick something you want to focus on. Maybe it's forensics, maybe it's ICS, maybe it's malware, you know, pick something and decide to focus on it for a bit because there's tons of content out there and you need to kind of narrow down your view to a manageable chunk. You, and please correct me and, you know, fill in the details. You do a lot of these resume workshops. Um, you help people get into cyber. Could you tell us about that? And then hopefully you're going to give us a bunch of tips of things that we should and shouldn't do on our resume or in an interview and so forth. Yeah. So there's about four of us in the United States who routinely go around to usually community conferences around the United States and run hiring clinics uh, so they can focus on interviews, resumes, et cetera, CVs some, sometimes for the international folks. And usually they involve a clinic where people come and they bring in their resumes and then they talk to actual hiring managers because you can go out and you can hire a good resume editor. And it's something I very much yeah. recommend to everybody. You can go out, look in your local area and find somebody who does that for a living. And they probably have a lot of credentials and they're very good at it, but they don't know anything about cybersecurity and how to get yeah. a job in cybersecurity. So you need that third set of eyes, which is somebody who actually works in the field to make sure you have the right content in your resume and that you're framing it correctly for the, the specific job that you're applying for. So we do that. So we get people who have been hiring people for quite a while in various roles and niches across cybersecurity, and we match them up with candidates. And I myself do a lot of those. And uh, we spend the day trying to help people be better at getting jobs in cybersecurity because it's a huge gap 
that. A lot of people who are very smart are very bad at interviewing. They need to work on their interview skills or they're very bad at writing resumes. They're not related skills to doing cybersecurity necessarily. Now, this is fantastic because I think it's it's a problem. I've seen the same with exams. You know, some people say I can do the job, but I'm I'm really bad at exams or, you know, I'm really good at what I do. But when I go to an interview, I freeze up or, you know, I'm really technical, but I don't know how to write a good resume. So on your blog, you've got this um, document, which we'll we'll show called um, Worst InfoSec Resume Ever. So we're talking offline. You said you've got an updated version of this or, you know, things have been changing. Oh, you know, this 2023. So this might be a little bit out of date. But can you sort of walk us through what is a really bad idea and what is a good idea? Because I have a Yahoo email address and I believe that's an example of something I shouldn't use. It is. Yeah. So you can go check that out on my blog. It's tosiphany.net. And it's just me taking a little spicy take on how to do a better resume. I've done this in a lot of formats. So I speak about it. I've got YouTube videos out there. I have blogs about it. But then I made this little post that is a, a terrible resume for InfoSec. And it doesn't mean that the person a bad candidate. It's just a bunch of like red flags that are really bad for getting through filtering. Because when you're thinking about resumes, it's not just about a person reading your resume or your CV. They're getting scanned by computers now. So there's some ML involved, some string searching, keyword matching that's going on before a human being ever sees your resume. And then you're also dealing with human biases from the HR side and from the hiring manager side. So I tried to talk about some of the major things that are big problems that I see over and over again. So so some of them are in the United States with resumes, which are completely different from CVs abroad in various countries. We'll focus on resumes. Sorry to interrupt. Just to clarify for your audience, especially international folks, very different thing. In the United States, you should never have a photo on your resume because we've got a lot of protections for various classes of people in the United States. And even beyond those protections for various classes of people, any ethical, decent hiring manager is also going to want to be going in blind and not being biased by what you look like, what class of group of people, what race you are, et cetera. There's a lot of implicit biases in play in our society. And sometimes people are aware that they're fighting them. And the best thing to do is just not bring those into the equation on that that initial screen through of your resume. Don't put pictures of yourself on there. They're going to bias somebody either positively or negatively, and you don't know which one. Doesn't matter what group of people you are. Doesn't matter what gender you are. Things like that. Somebody's going to be biased some direction. Don't even do it. That's That's one. Another one is crazy formatting. So I see a lot of people, especially young people, go out on the internet and they search for a resume template and they get this whiz-bang thing with like tables and crazy fonts and colors and all these different uh, formatted sections of the resume that are all over the place. And it looks really cool on paper if you print it out. But when you upload your resume to the scanning systems... They dump everything into plain text for the most part, and your entire resume explodes, and it's no longer legible or or readable. It's okay to have that for your printed paper resume, but you had better have a plain text, simple version, simple markup version, whatever, of your resume that could be converted into various formats like text without exploding. So that's another one that I see a lot. Another one that I bring up in that in that blog post that I've talked about a few times is your email address. And that's what David was just talking about. I'm talking about implicit biases that, that resume reviewers have. There's different biases in our society about various email domains and email providers. So you don't really want to be a techie person. And this doesn't mean that it's right or wrong or whatever. It's just something that exists. 
So when I'm talking about these biases, it doesn't make them right, but we're playing a game here. We're trying to get a job. When you're a techie person applying for a job, if you have something that's seen as non-technical as your email domain, so an AOL or a Yahoo Mail, that's going to bias in a lot of cases, the technical people who are reviewing your resume. Same thing as if you have like a gamer tag as your email address. It makes you look maybe immature to some people. The best, safest bet is to have like a Proton Mail or a Gmail with your simple name on it. That's just really simple. It's not considered out of date. It's not considered immature by anybody. It's just your name at a reputable provider for this purpose, reputable for this purpose, that email provider. So your own domain is okay if if you do that as well, if you host your own stuff um, or you you have your own mail server, et cetera, but don't get crazy with, you know, gamer tags as, as your, I, I don't apply for jobs with hacks for pancakes as my, as my email address on the resume. That's okay for like GitHub and stuff, but not for your email. So, so those are, so those are some gotchas that get a lot of people that you might not necessarily think about. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that I see in resumes all the time over and over and over again that I've talked about in this stuff. Like I see people's work experience and they write it like a job posting for the job they work at instead of yeah. talking about what they did well. And so, so that's another big problem that I catch all the time at clinics. And as I just look at resumes as part of my job, I hire a lot of people I have for a long time as a, as a manager in cybersecurity. So if you go pick up your resume right now and you read your work experience and it reads like the posting for your job, if they were going to hire somebody to do your job today, it would say those words on the website. You have a big problem because your resume is supposed to be talking about how you did well. It's supposed to be showcasing you. It's supposed to be a sales pitch for you. So if it reads like a posting for anybody who did that job, you are not bragging enough about yourself. So I say usually this kind of comes from the military, my military background, that there should be three parts to every resume bullet. Okay. So you should have an action. So that's the thing you did. That's like the job posting that's managed exchange servers and then an impact. So the impact is why was this important? How did it make things better in my organization and impacted people's ability to conduct sales or whatever? And then quantification. So a number, there should be numbers in these bullets. So for 5,000 users, you know, how many tickets did you close? How much money did you save? All kinds of different figures can be there to show impact. If you can't come up with those three things for a bullet, it might not be worth putting on your resume because you're not showing how you did well. I know it can be hard to pull up those numbers in retrospect, but it's worth the time to go through and think about whether you can have through those three things in each bullet of your work experience. So that's just some high level stuff. Some easy stuff that I cover in this blog and other material I put out there that's really, really important that a lot of people miss. What about if you don't have a lot of experience or you're still in college or stuff like that? How do you approach that? Yeah, so it's perfectly fine to talk about other things that you're doing to get better at cybersecurity. Let me tell you some things that would be okay to put on your resume. So if you are volunteering at your local B-sides or meetup and or a open source project, so committing your time to bettering cybersecurity and the cybersecurity community is a wonderful thing to put in your resume under volunteer work or contributions to research. Those are sections you can have on your resume and they're fabulous. You can also talk about CTF placement. 
I wouldn't just say I played in a CTF, but if you placed decently, that's worth saying. That means that you are going out of your way in your free time to learn more about cybersecurity. It's a wonderful thing. If you give a talk at a conference or a meetup, and anybody can do that. Don't be like, I'm too new. I can't talk about something. You know, you can always you can always present something in a new light that you found interesting. So that's a wonderful thing to put on your resume as well. So there's a, a variety of things that you could be doing either from an introverted perspective, you know, producing content online, or from a more extroverted perspective, participating in conferences, helping out with them, speaking, etc., that can make your resume grow even if you don't have a lot of work experience. What about, I think you mentioned, don't use like Yahoo and AOL as two examples of, you know, boomers like me. But if you're a young person, what about um, educational email addresses? Would you prefer Gmail slash ProtonMail or something? Or yeah, so, so what, think what, again about the, the assumption that people make by looking at you. And again, I'm not saying that those are negative or positive. They're just things yeah. that exist. It depends on where you're applying and things too, and, and who the hiring people will be. A startup's going to be very different from a government contractor. It's a different audience. You should always be tailoring your resume to the job and the, the audience. That's really important. But in general, you know, think about the formality of what you're conveying and what level you are conveying yourself at. So if you are in college and you're applying for an internship or your first job, that EDU email is super. If you are a graduate student who's doing academic research, that EDU is totally appropriate. Of course, that's going to be a very different resume. That'll usually be a CV in the United States. But if you have had two years in the field at another job and you're still using your college email, probably time to go because that's giving people that perception that you're new, that you're a student. So again, unconscious biases. We're always fighting those. We're fighting the computer system that scans your resume and converts it to plain text and looks for keywords. So we're fighting that. And we're also fighting societal biases. That's very unfortunate, but we probably always will be in some form or another. That's part of getting a job. It's playing the game. Even if the game is unfair, it's playing the game. That's what I try to help people with. What about putting like, I'm David Bombal, CCIE, MCSE, and then putting a whole bunch of stuff behind my name? Was, is that a good or bad thing? Again, it depends on the audience. If you're applying for a government position or a government contractor, that can be very valuable. If you're applying for a startup, probably looks a little stuffy. So again, tailor your, your resume for the audience. And what you might want to do there is look at resumes, like LinkedIn resumes of people who work there. That's totally valid. Do You should always do some OSINT on the place that you're applying. Yeah. So what do they present themselves as? Is it, is it super formal with their certifications at the top? That's, that's valid. And that also goes in fashion. So something that a lot of people don't know about resumes that I've learned over the years is that they have styles, they have fashions, and they change over time. So yeah. this is why you need to have somebody like me look at your resume. And you also need to have a professional editor because they know what's changed in the styles. Like where do you put your, what title do you put at the top of your resume this year? How do you format your first section of your resume, which could be a objective statement or a synopsis or keywords that changes over time. Things go in and out of fads. So have somebody who is a professional resume editor help you make decisions about that. And I, I think you've mentioned it, and just correct me if I'm wrong, in the US, it's a resume, or do they also have CVs in the US? And like, what's the difference? Yeah, so so the way the document that you use to apply for a job varies by job and location. So I've got a little catalog of some of those in my brain. I don't know about everything globally, I'm sorry, but here's, sure. here's an example. European CVs tend to be a lot more personal 
personal than United States resumes. There's more details about your personal life. And sometimes there's a photo, things like that in various European countries. It's way more personal than United States ones. And that's that's kind of an interesting byproduct in some ways of our, our protections for various classes and how people don't want to know things about people's personal lives because it can't infect, affect their hiring or their employment. So so there's, there's that difference. So there's a geographic difference there. And then also in the United States, you format that document differently if you're an academic. So if you're talking okay. about your academic research and you're applying for another academic institution, in a lot of cases, that's a CV. So it has more to do with your academic training and the research you've done, the coursework you've done, what you've taught, etc. And you'll also see that there's a different format for the United States government. They have a completely different format for resumes, both in the civilian government and in the military, where you have to follow specific formats very, very closely. In fact, there's specialized editors who focus on that. So if that's the route you want to go in, you need to find an editor who focus on how to do the document format for applying for a government job in the United States, because it's pretty unique and it's pretty detailed and specific. So depending on the job you're applying for, you're going to need different documents, whether they're CVs or resumes for location and the places that you're applying. That's great advice. I mean, I, I've, I've seen you mention in a few places the length of resume. So if we focus perhaps on commercial US companies, how long should my resume be? That's like the contentious question for the for the yeah. week. That's <laughs> the, the drama question. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so, so a lot of people debate that. And I'm not going to pretend to be the be all and all authority. Again, these things go in fads. So it changes over time as well. But if you've only spent a couple of years in the field, a couple few years in the field, your resume should really be one page because I have to sit there for a job posting and read 70 resumes for people. Yep. And I'm not going to read your whole resume if it's five pages long. I'm not going to do it. I don't have time. It's not because I don't like you or I don't want to give you a fair shot. I just don't have time and you're going to lose my focus. It's yep. an attention span and a time thing. So a couple, couple few years in the field, no more than one page. You start getting over like five years in the field. You've done a lot of stuff. You've done a lot of technical work and a variety of things. You've given some talks. Maybe, maybe you hit two pages then and that's okay back in front. And at that point, you're a senior enough person. I really have to delve a little bit more into your skills. So, so I'm going to read that. And then maybe you spend 25 years in the field, 20 years in the field in IT and security or whatever, and you kind of start hitting three pages and it makes sense. Maybe, okay, some people are going to be really uncomfortable with you ever hitting three pages and it should never go beyond that. But max of three pages ever from my perspective, you're going to hear max of two pages from some people as well. So again, talk to an editor, see how much of your experience really needs to be covered for the specific job you're applying for too. You know, if, if you've been doing this for as long as we have and you've yeah. got, you know, your Windows NT experience, is that really relevant to have in your resume anymore? Is your job from 2005 still relevant to have in your resume for what you're applying for? It depends. You, again, you need to tailor your, the documents you're submitting for the job you're applying for. So yeah, I love that. I was going to ask you about Windows 3.1 or 3.1. Yeah, I've heard you say like if someone puts that on their, on their resume um, in your field, you're going to start grilling them on like Windows NT, Windows 3.1. I care about seeing Windows 3.1. I'm not going to trust that you still remember what you did in, in exactly. 1999. Yeah, so when do you start removing stuff? So like if I've got lots of experience, and I think you've mentioned this as well, paragraph is bad, bullet points are better. And then how many bullet points would I put on and like each experience piece? Again, stylistic, your last job, rough figure about eight max, your, or your current job, and then going down from there, decreasing from there to, you know, 
know, like four jobs ago, if there's not something that's bitingly, critically relevant to the job you're applying for, maybe two bullets. So going back in time, you go from like eight bullets to like four bullets to like two bullets to maybe one bullet. And then you start considering if you need, if you even need to put that work experience after that on your, on your resume. Yeah. So less is more sometimes, right? It doesn't help to put a thousand skills because I've just, I'm just old. You've got to read it. And I've got to find the skills and the, and the experience I'm looking for in your resume. So if you're bombarding me with everything you've ever done, it's it's really hard for me to track down like a specific technical skill I need you to have. So be careful with the noise there. That that can get a little obtuse. Again, it's a human being that has to read this after it gets screened by a computer and an HR person. And if you make it way too verbose for what you're applying for with non-applicable skills, clearly non-applicable skills, that's just more for somebody to trudge through and it's going to be less attention spent on your resume. So rather tailor this the the resume to the organization. Like if I was going to go work for you, for the company you're at, I would make sure that I highlight stuff that's related to ICS. And you can see that in the job posting. They tell you what yeah. they want. If it's a decent company, if we're creating job postings, we tell you what we're looking for. And if you have those skills, they should be reflected on your resume. And you might find other things that are fundamentals or closely related that are relevant to put on there. But don't put something in left field on there. If it has no relation to the job you're applying for, focus on the things that are the job posting says they want. Tell me the dumbest mistakes I can make. Uh, I think you've mentioned stuff like spelling mistakes, right? I'm sure they'll be impressed with your excellent computer skills. <laughs> you know why? Because if I know what I shouldn't do, then I'm going to do the right thing. So tell me what I shouldn't do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't want to say anybody's dumb. I don't want to be like, you suck at resumes. I, I, everybody has room to grow and that's not necessarily their area of expertise. They're, they're computer science people or they're infosec people. But yeah, I see some pretty fundamental mistakes on the resumes. And again, this is the document, the critical document you're using to sell yourself to an organization you want to work for. And I see people send them and they're covered in typos and the formatting screwed up. Maybe they spell keywords wrong that would be automatically searched for in relation to the job. And it's just zero attention to detail. And first of all, it's going to hurt your chances to get through screening because the resume doesn't have the information it needs to contain or it's spelled wrong and it won't get caught by string searches. And second of all, again, biases. If you appear to have no attention to detail, that's going to impact my perception of your ability to do cybersecurity well, because our job requires a lot of attention to detail. It requires reporting, whether you're red team or blue team. It requires your ability to convey information to a customer via email and via report, et cetera. So if you are screwing up this critical two-page, only two-page, one-page yep. document that you're sending me, it's really going to color my perception of you in a negative way. So do you think it's necessary? I think you've, you've highlighted, you know, getting someone, I'm going to use the wrong term, but like a resume editor or someone to um, to go through it. Is that, is that right? Yes, I highly recommend that. And usually they work on a sliding scale. So if you're newer, it costs less. If you're more senior or executive, you're getting into the several hundreds of dollars for an edit, but it's pretty affordable for, for a junior person. I would recommend that and I'm not talking about your college. Usually those are just volunteers and they might not know what the newest thing is. Invest the whatever that is for your skill level, the money in going to see a professional editor who does that for a living, knows what's trendy, does this full time to look at your resume and help you rebuild it. That's worthwhile. It's a worthwhile thing for everybody to do. You think that you can write a resume well. Even I who do resume clinics across the United States don't write my own resume. 
I give them content and I tweak it to fit the technical needs of the organization I'm looking at, but I do not write the document. I have a professional editor do that. You should do both of those things. You should have a professional editor. You you should come up with your own stuff. that's going to go on the resume. You have to come up with that. So your work experience, your skills, et cetera, your education, write those down, go to a professional editor, have them put it into a document, tweak it with them, have a dialogue with them. And then you should go find somebody like a mentor or a clinic like the ones that we run and have a person who hires people in that field look at it. That gives you the best chance of success. So, I mean, I think the the, the biggest question I've been thinking about, and I think a lot of people will have it as well, is there's only one Leslie out there. Who can I reach out to? Who can help me? Because, you know, perhaps 100,000 people watch this video. Who are they going to talk to? Before people start emailing me, I I only have limited bandwidth. I can only do these during the clinics I run. So don't email me asking me to look at your resume. I'm sorry. I just don't have time. So definitely if you, if you work at a conference, you can reach out to me about running a clinic. I'm happy to try to arrange that into my schedule. People like Kathleen Smith and Ms. Bat run these as well. So there, there's there's other people I can refer you to who can run them if I can't. So there's a small group of us who, who do this pretty regularly. And we use the same format for our clinics. So we kind of are all on the same page. We're doing similar stuff. And also Ms. Bat, my, my colleague, my friend who, who helps me run these oftentimes has a framework out on her website that says how to run the clinics. If you're interested in rolling your own, it doesn't have to be with, with us. You can, you can start your own as well. So invite us to conferences. We're happy to help. And if we don't have the bandwidth to run one at your conference, we are happy to refer you to one or another of us who, who has the bandwidth to do it or to the document that shows you how to set up your own clinic with volunteers. So there's some options there. But if you are unable to go to a conference or a conference that has one of these clinics, then it comes down to your mentor in a lot of cases. I cannot stress enough how important it is to get a mentor and a mentor specific to what you want to do in the future, whether that's somebody who you want to emulate or who does the job you want to do. But that should be a more senior person with some experience typically in hiring who can do this for you, who can look at your document before you send it in. And again, that's a kind of formal relationship. A mentorship isn't just like, oh, you're my mentor now. Like it's an agreed on thing between two people, but you can find mentors in a variety of ways. But that's a good person to have look at your resume from a hiring manager technical perspective. That's great advice. I mean, it's it's so important to try and find someone who's walked the road. But I mean, that's why it's so nice to talk to people like you, you know, who've walked this road. You give advice because you don't know what you don't know is what I like to say. And someone like you can can highlight what we don't know. And um, that's fantastic. Anything else you want to talk about, Leslie, before I get to like the interview process? Because you've also got some really great tips about things to do and don't do at an interview. That kind of covers it. I- Again, I've got resources out there on my blog, tosiphony.net. I have a YouTube channel. I've got some stuff out there. And I'm very, very active on social media right now. My my flavor of the week is Mastodon. So feel free to reach out with more questions. I'm happy to chat with you more. I'm Hacks for Pancakes on pretty much every social media. We can talk about specific questions that you have. But that kind of covers some some major bullet points, some major oopsies that are really going to get people. So thank you. Leslie, so I've seen on your blog, you've got things that people should do when they come to an interview and things not to say when in an interview. So let's cover both if you can. Like just some like top tips that people 
should be aware of when coming to an interview and then perhaps things that they, they shouldn't do. Oh my God, I've seen it all. I've seen it all over the years now. <laughs> I've seen I've seen amazing interviewers and I've seen catastrophes, honest catastrophes. And again, I don't want to tell anybody that their their baby is ugly, but wow, I've seen some bad interviews. So let's start with some really good things to do in an interview. And that could be virtual or in-person, particularly for the in-person resumes. When you go into a place to interview, imagine that everybody who you talk to and everybody you meet is the person interviewing you. Okay. This has saved a lot of people's bacon. You never know who somebody is in an organization. This doesn't just apply for interviews. Be nice to everybody. Be polite to everybody. Say hello to people. Make eye contact with people because is they might be the person who's interviewing you later on. And that goes for virtual as well, you know, as you're corresponding people with people in email and stuff. You never know if the hiring manager is copied or they're going to be forwarded your communications. Just be nice and polite and courteous to everybody. Be friendly. People notice that. It's really important. Some things that I see people do wrong that um, <laughs> and I'm going to go into the, the wildest cases that I've ever had of interviews that have just gone catastrophically wrong. But first of all, don't tell the interviewer that they're doing things wrong. I don't know. This seems like a common sense thing to me, but there's a lot of people out there who want to prove how smart they are and they're hyped up in the interview about proving how smart they are. And in cybersecurity, this is a rule for life. Any sentence that begins with, why don't you just, is a dangerous, dangerous place to go. Because if it's simple... It's probably already been tried and it can't be done for some reason. Now, that doesn't mean that when you're the new person to the organization, you shouldn't politely ask those questions in case there's something that's been missed. But during the interview is not the time to do that. Assume that they have tried all the simple things and don't tell them how to do their job. It's really offensive. If they're doing something that you think is crazy from a cybersecurity perspective that might impact your choice to accept the job, if you're like, wow, that's really unethical or wow, I think they're doing things in a really insecure, dangerous way that I won't be able to impact and it might hurt my credibility, then maybe don't take the job. The interview is not the place to tell the hiring manager or their boss or the people who will be your colleagues that they are doing things wrong. That is a way to not go on to the next stage of the interview. Come to interviews prepared to ask questions too. Again, this seems like kind of gaming things and it is, but you're playing a game. Y'all, you're playing a game here. It's important to research the organization you're applying for for a multitude of reasons. You're interviewing them too. And I know this is hard to understand when you're applying for your first job and you're nervous and you think you're the one being grilled to pieces, but you're interviewing them too. You're deciding whether it's a place you want to work and you'll succeed at. And you should come prepared to the interviews with questions that help you answer that question of, do I want to work here? Is it a good place for me to learn and grow? So questions about how you'll be trained, the future of the organization, the camaraderie on the team, all of the work-life balance, all those things could be relevant to you. And you should be asking good questions that matter to you about that. I see that as a hiring manager. I see if you come with some knowledge of the organization that I work at and where you would be spending a significant portion of your time if you got hired. If you don't, I worry. I worry that you're walking into something you don't know about. I can try to tell you all the important stuff, but it might not be the thing that's important to you. And I don't 
the last thing I need is somebody to start, go a week and realize it's not the job for them. So I'm happy when you answer questions, when you ask me questions. So that's another key thing to do in an interview. My my worst interview story ever was, um, I feel bad even sharing a story like this, but it's so funny. As I was hiring a malware reverser years ago, and malware reverse engineering is an incredibly niche technical field. Like you have to have a lot of training. We're not just talking again. We're not just talking like, live analysis here. We're talking like static code level reverse engineering of code. So really technical, really niche, requires quite a lot of experience. And it's very hard to hire these people because it's such a niche skill set. They get a lot of money for what they do. And there's not many people out there who want to do it and are trained how to do it. So you want to get a lot of money in InfoSec in a a very niche field. But I posted this job and I got this candidate on paper. I couldn't figure out what was going on. He had like an eight page resume with a bunch of malware related stuff, but it didn't really read like a malware reverse engineer. It was just kind of oblique and a lot of buzzwords. But I was like, okay, I mean, I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. So I screened him on, I did a phone screen with my team and what he did for a living is he administered antivirus servers. He had never touched reverse engineering in his life, but he applied for this malware reverse engineering position. And that's okay. Everybody applies for the wrong job sometimes. That's fine. And usually it's in the first 10 to 15 minutes of the call, you figure out you're just not a match. Again, you're interviewing them, they're interviewing you. But this guy would not let it go. He would not let it go. The the call went on for an hour and 45 minutes because the the man was insistent that he could learn how to do it. He was just going to pick it up. And and we needed somebody who knew how to do this already. I mean, I'm all for hiring pipelines. I'm all for hiring junior people. But we needed like a senior principal level malware reverse engineer. And this guy for an hour and 45 minutes kept interrupting us and saying, but I can do it. I can learn how to do this. I'm sure it's easy. And we were all too nice to just hang up on him. Obviously, it wasn't a fit, but obviously he was just going to keep trying to do the auctioneer sales pitch haggling thing of trying to get the job. And at some point I should have just hung up the phone, but it was an hour and 45 minutes when I finally got off that call. And that was the most bizarre interview I've ever been on in my life. Do you find that people bluff and they should rather just say, I don't know the answer? Be honest, please. I mean, I'm not every hiring manager ever, and I'm pretty, pretty ethical and straightforward, but God, stop trying to lie and search your way through interviews. Just tell me you don't know something. It's okay. You're either going to be a fit or you're not. What is the purpose of you lying to get the job? You're going to start there and you're not going to be able to do it. And then we're going to have a miserable time and you're going to get separated from the company. There's no point in lying about things. If you don't know, say, I don't know, but this is the best answer I can get, give or the best guess I can give, or this is how far I've gone in my studies with this. Just tell me the truth. Put it in a good light. You know, be constructive about it. Like, hey, I, I know a lot about this, but I haven't learned so much about why. Um, it, it's okay. It's okay. Not everybody's going to fit every criteria for every job posting. Most people aren't. And I don't ask a lot of stupid buzzword questions, you know, Q&A questions about what port is which and things like that. But you yeah. might run into that. But nobody's ever going to know they, the answer to every interview question. They're just not. And don't spin it for 20 minutes trying to BS your way through a question you don't know. It wastes my time. I know you're doing it. I know when you're typing into Google on your phone or your computer, I can tell that too. For God's sakes, just tell me you don't know. I love that. I love that. I, I like to ask this question. And let's let's say you're young again. Um, well, you are young. You're 21. But let's say you, you, you're 19. What advice would you give yourself? I grew up in a different world, y'all. It's so different now. You can't take my experience and place it on top of things happening 
20, 25 years later. You can't, you can't do that. It's, it's a different world from when I came up and I, I was definitely an idiot teenager. If I could go back in time <laughs> and just shake myself a few times and just tell myself to focus, but things turned out in a good way. Like if I went back yeah. in a time machine and I changed things and I made myself a more diligent student and I made myself get her, get her exam scores and get into a better school and have a more prestigious military career, I'd be a totally different person right now. Maybe I wouldn't have the cool job I have in cybersecurity. Maybe I wouldn't know the people I know. So it's a journey. Like sometimes we screw up. Sometimes we aren't the best students. Sometimes we don't choose the right thing in our careers or what we choose to do in our personal lives and we make mistakes. And that's part of being human. And honestly, I think we grow from it in a lot of cases unless we die or unless something like irrevocable happens to our lives. It, it leads us to where we are. So I, I'm in a pretty good place now. And everything that I did wrong and right led me to where I am right now. So I wouldn't I wouldn't go back and change anything as, as dumb as I was back then. But I will tell young people today, you have so many resources available to you. You have so many ways to learn about cybersecurity. I didn't have any of that. Nobody wanted to mentor me. That's why I focus so hard on doing it for other people now. You have YouTube, you have TikTok, you have great people out there producing content. You have tons of CTFs online. You don't have to buy a bunch of like discount server equipment to have home labs now. You can use AWS, you can use Azure. You have all these options to learn cybersecurity on your own now for pretty cheap. That's phenomenal. There's so many resources out there. There's so many great blogs. People are out there on Mastodon and Twitter sharing lots of content all the time. There's communities. We have B-sides in almost every city around the world now where you can go and for cheap, go to watch talks in, in person and network with people in cybersecurity. Again, next to none of this existed when people in my generation and the generation before me got into cybersecurity. And it's huge. Take advantage of it. Even if you're introverted, get out to your local meetups, go to your B-sides. It's okay if you need to like take an hour and then go back to your room for an hour or sit yeah. in your car for an hour and decompress. Just go do it. These things are huge. They're amazing. And there's such an improvement in the field. I love what you said. It's a journey. You know, those of us who've been down the road for a long time know it's, you know, it's not straight, is it? It's never straight. It's like windy and, you know, there's detours and all the rest of it. So I want to, I want to talk about like, you've got a bunch of stuff on your wall behind you. You've got multiple degrees. Is that right? I do. Yeah. I think David, you were so right about saying that. It's just the, that winding journey through life. And uh, not everything I did perfectly placed me for cybersecurity. I have a degree in avionics. I fixed airplanes for a while. You know, it's wow. you, we do weird things in life. And as long as we don't die or end up in a terrible place, you know, personally, health-wise, things like that, a lot of that can help us grow and, and become better people. So not every day is going to be good. But yeah, I've done a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of stuff. There's a few things up there on my wall behind me. I love it. I love it. I think it's an encouragement for anyone because I get this question a lot. David, I'm 25. Is it too late for me? Or, you know, I'm 35. Is it too late for me? And I think, please talk to that. I mean, I, from my point of view, it's like, it's never too late. You could be 90 years old and learn about cybersecurity. It's it's fine. There's, there's no... Ageism is a real problem. It sucks. Yeah. It's a real problem. And that's, you know, back when we were talking about those implicit biases, that's another one that we have to fight. Again, that's get rid of your Yahoo email, get rid of your AOL email. <laughs> it makes you look old. Ageism is a real problem, but anybody can learn about cybersecurity and it's never too late to change jobs. It's never too late 
There's there's plenty of job openings in cybersecurity. If you want to learn and you want to do this job, there's plenty of places for you to go. And there's plenty of places for you to learn, as I was saying. The world is really yours in cybersecurity right now. And it's well-paying jobs. And it's okay to go into the field because you want a well-paying job too. That's yeah. perfectly all right. And um, and yeah, I mean, I, I know that there's going to be levels of ageism that you have to fight as you apply for jobs. And it's going to make things awkward, but it, that's a thing that you can beat with a good mentor and applying the right place. Places and and building a good resume, all those things help you overcome stupid biases that people have. Again, it's a it's a game that we have to play, and it sucks. Um, I'm definitely not spring chicken, so it, you know it sucks. It it, it it it's scary to change jobs. Certainly, I, I got a job once where I had to leave after a week because it was just the wrong place. I had to walk oh, wow. after a week. It's like this is incredibly unhealthy. It's incredibly unethical, and I have to leave. And yeah, that's terrifying. Making those jumps in life is always really, really scary. Changing jobs from something that's familiar and stable, that's scary. But there's a lot of cool stuff you could be doing in cybersecurity, for sure. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's, it's a windy journey. Don't be scared to jump um, because there's so many opportunities, like you say, you, you, like on YouTube specifically, you know, people like to talk about red teaming or hacking, but I mean, there's a vast field, isn't there? Huge. There's so many niches. And one of the important part of finding a cybersecurity job is choosing a niche. I guess a lot of young people, especially you come up to me and they're like, I want to do cybersecurity. What do I do? Can you mentor me? And I'm like, what do you want to do? Yeah. It's a huge field. And there's no way for any person to know more than like maybe two niches out of everything. And that's a lot in, yeah. in great detail. So you can be a generalist, but then you know things at a really high level. But for deep diving into something like pen testing or digital forensics or malware reversing, that's like your career. And you don't have to know that right away. And you can always change it later on. But if you don't focus on something, it's, it gets overwhelming. Like it's there's so much stuff to learn in cybersecurity now. It helps you focus if you kind of decide on some niche that you think will be interesting for you. I think it's, it's fantastic if you can do what you love and get well paid for it in life. It's not always possible. I've done some terrible jobs in my life, but you know, that's the goal. You're so right. I wanted to ask you about degrees. So this is, I know people are going to ask this. It gets, I get asked this all the time and I know you've got a whole cool section on your blog where you, in, you've got different people to give input and I'll put all those links below. But just as a general rule, and this is your opinion, so just give it to us, like you advising us who watching you. Is a degree worth it? Is a cyber degree worth it? What would you advise me to do? Degree certs? Let's start with the degree question first. Do okay. you do you get a degree? It depends on you. So there's different types of learners out there. There's people who learn in different ways. Like there's auditory learners, visual learners, kinesthetic learners. There's people who do better in academic settings and there's people who do better in practical settings. However works for you is a great tactic. I'm not going to tell people to get a degree or not get a degree. If that's how you learn, then sure. And you can afford it. You can get financing and you're not going to go debt for the rest of your life. Yeah, go get a degree. That's a, a fabulous option. Um, consider all the aspects that I talked about, though. Can you afford it? Things like that. Is it the way that you learn? Are you going to excel there? That's one way to get the skills, certainly. Do you get a cybersecurity degree? Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that still. I see a lot of flaws and problems with the cybersecurity degree graduates I see out there, especially master's degree graduates. There's a couple decent programs out there. I'm not going to name and shame anybody for not being in that group, but here's the problem with cybersecurity specific degrees. Our field changes every day, every week, every month. It changes drastically. The tools change, threats change. What I see a lot from people who get 
a cybersecurity degree is their degree focuses very heavily on tools and the tools become obsolete. And it focuses specifically on cases and incidents that are happening now and those become obsolete. So what I see happen is these people go get a master's degree in cybersecurity and it's been three years and they have not kept their knowledge up to date for three years. And everything they know about cybersecurity is three years out of date with this eons in cybersecurity. What is more important to learn is fundamentals of variety of computer science fields. So computer science, computer engineering, network engineering, those things don't change as much. And especially with legacy environments, sometimes they don't change at all. So (laughs) go get yourself a computer science degree or a network engineering degree, and you will be set for quite a long time on how computers work, which is fundamental to computer hacking and computer security. Computer security is a dicey degree to get because if it's very, very tactical, and it focuses a lot on tools like how to use Metasploit and how to use Cobalt Strike and which cool steganography tool is out there right now for digital forensics. That stuff is going to be out of date in a couple of years. And it's not necessarily going to translate to the next tool, to the next problem, to the next iteration. I would rather you know a ton about how networks work or a ton about how operating systems work or code works. That's going to last you. That's my recommendation there. Be very careful in vetting your cybersecurity degrees. Leslie, you've got degrees, but none of your degrees are cyber degrees, are they? No, no, they didn't exist when I, back in the before times when I got my degrees. I have degrees in network engineering, in electronics, and in avionics. So in other words, like the networking one, as an example, has been great knowledge that you've kept. And I'm assuming even the avionics stuff has helped you, even if it's like a way of thinking and working with hardware and stuff like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially now I do ICS cybersecurity. So I'm working on embedded systems and infrastructure systems that are not necessarily Windows or Linux. So they're they're like embedded computers, PLCs, things like that. So the weird journey, the winding path, as we talked about before that I've taken, has given me the skills that I need to do what I do to day and it it worked out for the best. So yeah, I mean, if you don't want to get a degree though, I want to make that really clear too. It's fine to not get a degree in cybersecurity too, unless you want to go into very niche things like again, like government jobs that might require an advanced degree to get promoted or academic jobs where you need to be obviously academic credential person. It's there's lots of other ways to gain the skills as well and build a good resume from boot camps to certifications to hands-on experience and training, apprenticeships, things like that. You've got a lot of options. So don't feel like you have to get a degree either. If I'm very fortunate, and I wish I was when I was young because I didn't have this opportunity, but let's say I've got uh, a parents who've got money and they say you have to get a degree. They want me to get a degree. I've read on your website some of the feedback from various people that, you know, a degree is worth getting because it helps you in a lot of traditional organizations, perhaps. So if I have the money and I'm not going to get into debt, so I've got the bank of mom and dad, let's say, it's a good idea to get a degree for the long term. Is is that kind of correct? Or, you know, what what would you say to that? Yeah, to be blunt, degrees still have a lot of value to more legacy organizations, the government, to large corporations. They can impact your ability to become a manager certainly, to move up the corporate ladder. They they can be a, a great boon, not necessarily from a technical perspective, but from a piece of paper perspective. And then there are things that you can learn from a degree program that are very valuable from deep academic yep. knowledge of a technical field to management skills. And you can learn those other places, but 
that's a great way to learn them. So a degree can be a good choice if you can afford it. In the United States, again, there's a risk of going into debt for most of your adult life. So it's a tough decision whether you're going to go get a degree. But if you have a scholarship or you have other funding to go get a degree, it's easier to do it now than it will be when you're 30 or 40 or 50. It it gets harder when life gets busier to sit down and and study. It's easier to do it when you're young. It's easier to do it right now. Go go do your degree if you can afford it. And it's, it's something you want to do, do it now. Don't wait. You know, if you can do the back-to-back bachelor's and master's, go do that, you know, get it over with. Don't try to do it when you have a house and a mortgage and kids, or you're traveling for work all the time later on. It's just going to get harder to do. I love that advice. I mean, I did my degree part-time while working. Yeah. If I try that now, I wouldn't make it. But when I I was 21, I could do it. So yeah, I love that advice. Do it if you can. If you have the opportunity, do it because it's going to get harder perhaps as you get older, especially when you have children. (laughs) It makes it a lot harder. What about certs? Do you want to talk about those? So certs are sometimes a useful element to building your resume and building your technical skills. Now, the sad truth is there's some reputable certs out there and there's some certs that have lost value due to a a number of different things. So there are certs that have been devalued because the organization has sold too many of them, or they've become required by organizations and people have started finding ways to cheat on them. There's a lot of different certs out there at different price points. I would say if they teach you something, go do them. If you are going to learn something from them and they're affordable to you, definitely go get a cert. Understand that some of them have less value than others. And There aren't many certs out there that are going to get you a job on their own without experience or without other knowledge or other contributions to the field. Entry level, there's a lot of entry level cybersecurity certs out there. I think that Cisco's programs are wonderful for cybersecurity analysts. I think that's a pretty legitimate, credible program. And it's kind of a deep dive program. They they have some really cool stuff for, for analysts to learn how to work in a SOC. And I think that's a pretty legitimate program. And I don't want to go into bashing certs because I don't want to get sued. But just keep in mind that some of the big name certs out there, again, there's large organizations and governments and things out there requiring people to get those certs on a very broad basis. So what happens by default? People start boot camping them and they start cheating. And we all know it. So if you learn something from them, go get them. If the job you're applying for requires them, go get them. But don't necessarily expect every entry-level cybersecurity cert out there to get you a job because some of them have been completely devalued. That's great advice. How do I get experience without having a job? Like I, it's this old this old thing. I always get it from the young people. David, I need a job to get experience, but I need experience to get a job. What do I do? Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been talking about some stuff you should get involved with, like your your local B sides and your meetups and community projects too, like open source projects if you're more introverted and you want to do things remotely they always need help do your own research you know there's options for that too you you have options to go do malware research or reversing you know on your own time or you know do osint into criminal activity things like that do it safely do it legally but there's tons of work to be done out there there's tons of projects to get involved with. And that's a great way to get mentorship too. There's tons of yeah. community meetups. There's wonderful things going on there. Those are all ways to build your knowledge and get involved in things that you can put on your resume. So that's that's wonderful, wonderful options for, for building your brand as you're applying for your first job. But there's a lot of entry-level jobs out there too. Again, I don't want to dissuade anybody who's just like, hey, I want to make a lot of money and I'm willing to work hard, but 
I don't care about cybersecurity. I just want to work hard and get paid. That's totally fine too. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff in your free time. Just understand that you'll need some in in to meet the, the basic credentials for an entry-level job. So your computer science fundamentals, things like that. You're going to have to get them somehow, whether that's working in a help desk or something before you get into cybersecurity or getting a degree or going to a boot camp, something like that. You're going to need to have those foundational skills to get your entry-level job. But it's perfectly okay to go that streamlined, no time outside of work route too, you know, and, and just get a job for the sake of making money. That's okay. Do you have any final thoughts as we wrap this up for 2023? Any like advice? for me, whether I'm younger or a bit older, you know, any final thoughts or wisdom that you can share? We've been talking for a while and it might've gotten a little overwhelming. I've thrown so much information out at you. You can do this. You can do the cybersecurity thing. You can get a job in cybersecurity. You can learn this. You're going to have to dedicate time and effort to it. It's not necessarily easy every day and not everything necessarily goes the way you want all the time in any career, but you have the capability of doing this and you need the people. If you have any questions, if you want to chat more about this, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to chat more as my schedule allows, but you have the capability of doing this and you're going to do a great job. Leslie, I, I want to thank you so much for sharing. You know, you don't have to do this, but you share life-changing information with all of us. So thanks so much for doing that. Thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it.